Well, our journey through the Minor Prophets brings us to Micah today. I tell you what, if a Minor Prophet ever gets promoted to Major, it'll be Micah. Micah has so much to say. And one of the reasons he's held in such high regard is this very passage we're about to read. Uh, I've seen different times where people will pick out the, the top verses, you know, must-know verses out of Scripture, and this is always among them. It's right up there with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And it doesn't take long listing the great passages of Scripture until you come to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We're going to begin reading with verse 6 of chapter 6. So let's be standing to hear this, the Word of God, to us in our lives today. First of all, we begin with our voices asking a question. With what shall we come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the answer, he has told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The Word of God. I feel a special bond with the prophet Micah for several reasons. One is I, I lived with him for four years, four, not years, four months one time. Uh, back when I was taking my first graduate level Old Testament exegesis course, the uh, scripture that we analyzed and looked at for four months was Micah chapters four and five and got to know him well and we just became buddies. I appreciate Micah so much for his candor. He just tells it like it is. But also appreciate him for his word of mercy and grace. And I appreciate him for his vision of seeing what things can be and what things will be. And another thing I love about Micah is that we share a common interest and passion a passion for courtroom dramas. Now, courtroom dramas are sort of what I grew up on in the day that, that I was watching a lot of television as a young person and movies, and it seemed to really dominate. Nowadays, it's more the forensic shows are really, you know, what, what everybody's watching. But, but back then, do you all remember when almost every other movie and every other show was something about a courtroom from things like Inherit the Wind to Kill a Mockingbird and maybe a more recent classic, A Few Good Men. Or you watch television and you saw things like Matlock or The Defenders. And, of course, the king of all is Perry Mason. I, I, I had someone stop me after first service. Bless her heart, she's probably not over 35 years old. She said, I never heard of Perry Mason. I said, 
bless you, my child. <laughs> well, before even Perry Mason, Micah and his friend Isaiah in particular, they were contemporaries, were writing courtroom dramas. And one of them is this passage that we just read. Now, if we want to read the whole drama, we have to back up to verse 1 of chapter 6. But also, if you want to really hear this passage, you have to put yourself into a courtroom. All right? So I'm going to give you a minute. Not a minute. That's long enough. Have you gotten there? Or are you standing now in a courtroom? Now, the courtroom that you're standing in probably is a little different than the one that Micah visualized as he wrote this drama. Uh, the courtrooms back then, they were at the city gates. You've heard about talking about going to the elders at the city gates. And they would have right there at the city gate, they would have usually a porch that was nice and colonnaded and closed in. And that's where they would hold court. But it works to go to a modern day courtroom. So you can go, some of us old folks can go to Perry Mason's courtroom. You can go to the Tom Green County Courthouse courtroom if you want. But you've all have seen one and maybe been in one. So let's go there. Ready? Now look around. What do you see? Well, first of all, you see the prosecuting attorney. And in this drama, that prosecuting attorney is Micah. All right? Now you look around, and over here is the plaintiff. Here is the accuser. Here is the one who says that he has been wronged. And sitting in that seat is God. And we turn and look at the jury box, the ones before whom this case is to be presented. And sitting in this, now you're going to have to use your vivid imagination on this, Sitting in the jury box are, as Micah says, the mountains, the hills, and the foundations of the earth. In other words, all creation, the way God made it, and the way things are supposed to be. All right, so we have the prosecuting attorney, we have the, defend, uh, the, we have the plaintiff, and we have the jury. Now we need the defendant. Look around. Can you find him or her? Now, I don't think any of you have found him yet. Because to see the defendant, you're going to need a mirror. Because the way this drama is written, we all stand in the courtroom as the defendant. We all stand accused. And what makes it even more difficult, we all know we're guilty. Well, the drama begins with Micah addressing the jury and encouraging the plaintiff to state his case. Listen to how he starts. He says, rise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people and he will contend with Israel. Okay, God, you've got a complaint against us, your people. It's time to stand up and tell us what it is that you're upset with us about. Now, if you've read Micah along the way, and hopefully you read parts of Micah in Bible class today, 
You know that Micah, as I said before, pretty much tells it like it is. And so many times in Micah, when God turns loose, he turns loose. And he just lays it out there, just what he's thinking and what it's all about. For example, if you turn back to chapter 3, listen to this accusation. It says, you hate the good and you love evil. And you tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones. You eat the flesh of my people. You flay their skin off them. You break their bones into pieces. You chop them up like meat and put them in a kettle. Whoa. That's pretty rough. So here now, God is standing in the courtroom. He's about to present his case. And we hold on. Here we go. What's it going to be? But in this drama, God takes a totally different tone. And in fact, in this drama, the plaintiff becomes plaintive. And listen to what he says. My people, my people, my people. What have I done to you? And why are you tired of me? How have I wearied you? Please tell me. All he wants to know is why we don't care that much about him. Why we don't think about him that often. And why we get tired of him. He goes on to remind them of past events. He says, don't you remember that I was the one that brought you as a nation up out of slavery and took you through the desert and brought you to freedom? And and don't you remember that time when that King Balak tried to hire that prophet Balaam to curse you? Was trying to bring down curses upon your name. And I put in Balaam's mouth rather blessing than cursing. And don't you remember when you got to that river that you were going to cross over into the promised land and how that river just split open and you were able to walk through into your freedom on dry land? Don't you remember? What he's accusing the people of God, including us, is that we forgot our story. We are forgetting the story of our interactions with God. And if we forget our story, we will also forget our God. And he's encouraging the people to think back. And he's encouraging us to think back. Now, to think back about our story goes all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning of human history. And we notice as we learn and know about these things how how God has always worked with his people. He has always been faithful with his people. He has always brought them through the really tough times. But he's also encouraging us to think back in our own personal story and to look back at those times in our lives whenever we were frustrated or down or didn't know what to do. And God lifted us up and comforted us, and cared for us. Smith family's here today. If you were here yesterday, we talked a lot about Royce and all that he's done for us, and 
Part of my story is Royce and Carla Smith. And I can't tell the story of God in my life without telling the time that he used them to bless me, to lift me up. And I'm thankful to Royce, and I'm thankful to Carla. But I'm most of all thankful to God because he was working through you. I can't forget that story. We can't forget the story of Jesus Christ, who God in the flesh was born and lived among us and died for us and rose from the dead before us so that whenever we gather together as family to say goodbye to a loved one, and one day when that's us, that'll be the opening up of life as it really can be and will be and should be. So he says, remember your story. Remember how we've walked together and been together. Why are you tired of all this? I don't understand. Well, it's our turn to respond. And boy, are we whiners. You know, uh, I thought of my grandsons. One of our rituals when they come and spend time with us is somewhere along the way we sit down and watch the movie Up. And uh, there's a, a scene in there where the little boy Russell is having to help Carl dragged the house. If you haven't seen the movie, none of that makes sense. But anyway, they're working really hard pulling this house over to where they want it to be. It's floating by balloons. <laughs> you, you, you need to watch that movie, okay? All right. Uh, anyway, as they're wa- walking along, Russell starts saying, I'm tired. My leg hurts. My knee hurts. My elbow hurts. I need to go to the bathroom. So anytime my grandsons start whining about something, I like to say, I'm tired. (laughs) And they start laughing. Well, we sound kind of like Russell when we start talking to God sometimes. Oh, God, you just want so much, you know. We do get so tired of doing all these things that you want us to do. And it becomes almost sarcastic here. He says, what do you want? You want me to bring you a burnt offering? How about if I bring you a calf that's a year old? Or, Or what about a thousand rams? Now we're really getting ridiculous, aren't we? Or tell you what. Would, would it please you if we, had, we gave you 10,000 rivers of oil? Or why don't I just sacrifice my, my firstborn child to you, you know? Is that what you want? Will that please you? It's just that you just are always wanting, I, I just, uh, oh, we just can't do this. That's our defense. We just can't. To which Micah responds with the words of God. He says, that's just not true. God has told you what he wants you to do. There's no way that you can claim that you don't know what to do and that you can't do it because God has told you what he wants you to do. Monty, could you put that next slide up? There it is. We read that a moment ago. And, and this is it. This is why this passage is so important. This is God saying, this is what I want from you. This is what I want you to do. Uh, I'm going to read this. I want you to repeat after me, okay? You ready? Ready? 
What does God want from us? To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. Let's do it again. To, lo- to do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. Let's read it together. To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. You can't say from now on that you don't know what God wants from you. Because there it is. And it's very portable. It's very easy to remember. Put it in your pocket. Take it home with you. What does he want us to do? He wants us to do justice. And notice, please, that the correct uh, translation of that is to do justice. If you're reading some other translation that talks about us acting justly and being nice and all that, just put it aside and listen to what he said. You do justice. Justice is what you do. And what is justice? The fav- my favorite definition of justice is that justice is to sort out what belongs to whom and to return it to them. Everybody's treated fairly. Everybody gets what they really need and what they have and what belongs to them. Now, to, to tell you why Micah is so sold on this, Micah's a lot like Amos. Remember Amos when we talked about him? Amos was a country boy from the south, and he went to the big city in the north and preached, you know. Well, Micah's preaching in the south, but he comes from a little town, too. He's just a village kid, but he's in the big city of Jerusalem, and he lived during a time along with Amos, Hosea, Isaiah. These guys all knew each other. They, they, they lived in a time when the wealth was really being concentrated in the hands of the ruling class and the aristocracy, and the poor people were really, really suffering. And he says, God is saying, you have taken away what belongs to them. And you must do justice. You need to make sure that what you have is yours and what they have is theirs. And it's not just a nice feeling that you have. You do it. One of my favorite stories I've told in years past about justice is a Walter Brueggemann story, uh, who's a mentor of mine through his works, And anyway, he tells the story of of a little lady in England who goes to a tea house. And she's all prim and proper and has her little purse, and she walks in. And it's rather crowded, but she finds an empty table there, and she sits down and orders tea. And the tea comes with a little package of five cookies. And so she doesn't know if she wants cookies or not, but, you know, anyway, but it comes with the tea. So she's drinking the tea. Well, this, other, this man walks in, and the only seat available in the little tea shop is the one at her table. So he comes in and sits down there across from her. And she recognizes that it's crowded, so what does she do? You know? but, but this guy, I mean, here she is in her dress clothes and looks so nice, and this guy's rather shabby looking, and his skin is a different color from hers. And she's a little uncomfortable, but, you know, what can she do? Because after all, she's a nice person, so she just sits there. And she's drinking her tea, and she decides, you know, I think I will have a cookie. So she reaches out to the little package of cookies sitting on the table and takes a cookie and begins eating it. And as she's eating it, she notices that this man reaches out and takes a cookie and starts eating it. (sighs) What is he doing? But after all, she's nice. 
She's not going to say anything. So she continues drinking her tea, and she reaches out and takes another cookie. And wouldn't you know it, he reaches out and takes another cookie. Ah, what is he doing? i got to get out of here. But there's one more cookie left. So she reaches for it, and he beats her to it. And he takes that cookie and breaks it in half and offers her half. That's just too much. She gets up, she picks up her purse, and she walks out of there. She is so indignant. How dare that man eat her cookies? When she gets to the bus stop and opens her purse to get change, she finds her little box of cookies. You know, we a lot of times think they're our cookies. We deserve them, and they're not. Certainly, we are people that recognize that all blessings come from the Lord, and they're His anyway. And we are called upon him by his, as His people to make sure that people get what they deserve and they need. And that it goes beyond physical things. It goes to respect and dignity, that we give people their due. You know, Jesus got in a lot of trouble when He lived on this earth because He ran around with people that you were supposed to be ugly to and reject. And He ran around, ate with them loved on them, treated them like human beings. That's doing justice too, is to give what belongs to others. Quickly, to love kindness. It's hard to translate that. It really is two Hebrew words for love, ahav and kesed. We are to love God's love. Kesed is a hard word to translate. We translate it kindness. We translate it mercy. Most often these days we translate it steadfast love. But what it means is it's the kind of love that God loves with. It's a covenant love. It makes, it's a love that never stops. The steadfast love, the kesed of the Lord never ceases. And once he has made a covenant with his people, he keeps it. Well, what does it mean for us to love that kind of love? For one thing, it means that we love the fact that God loves us that way. And we recognize that he loves us completely and, and openly and, 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 and will never stop loving us. But it also means that we love that kind of loving so much we're going to love that way. That we're going to love with kessid. We're going to love our spouses. We're going to love our children. We're going to love our friends. And Jesus, being the nosy person he is, keeps pushing those boundaries out, and he says, even our enemies. That's right. And so, therefore, we are called upon to love God's way of loving and to do it. And then, finally, to walk humbly with your God. A couple of things I want to point out about that. There's so much, there's so much we could say about all of this, but to walk humbly with your God. First of all, I want to warn you, there are some translations of, your, of the Bible into English that leave out the your you know? And if you got one of those, just close it up and set it aside. Go get you another Bible, okay? Because <laughs> that's important. It's your God. It's not the God. You are to walk closely with the God who wants to be close to you and intimate with you and know you and love on you. To walk humbly with Him. What does it mean to walk humbly? Well, it certainly means to recognize that He is God and we are not. That he is the great and almighty and that we are weak and sinful. 
And therefore, before him, we recognize that we are humble beings. But it means more than that. Because it also implies that if you want to walk with God, you've got to be humble because God's walk is a walk of humility. God is best represented by wrapping himself up in flesh and being born in a barn. My mother used to ask me that question, were you born in a barn? Jesus could say, yeah, (laughs) I was. How can you become more humble than that? God's way is a way of service and love and support and humility. And if we want to walk with him, we better be walking that walk of humility too, because if we're not, we're not walking with him, because that's where he's going, and that's what he's doing. So what does God want from us? Let's read it again. I'm afraid someone might have forgotten it. No? Okay. Let's read it again. Ready? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You can't say you don't know. Now let's go do it. Let's stand and sing.